Let's check your level. One, two, three. One, two, three. Gold. Okay. Un, trois. <laughs> okay. Hit it. I always say hit it. I start the same way every time. So predictable. So lame as well. <laughs> have we started? You well, have started. I guess we have now. Started with my French. Once again, we are standing together in front of a mirror in a budget-priced hotel room. This is Strobe Cream Part 2. We are getting ready for an event at Canberra, in Canberra that we are both required to attend by the ABC where they ask politicians for more money. And It's called Showcase. Showcase. Optimistically. <laughs> and uh, it's really a totally unbridled opportunity for members and senators to meet bananas in pajamas. I was going to say exactly that. You beat me to it. they've got B1 and B2 that come out and basically every non-custodial parent in Parliament House is away from their kids, just swamps and yeah. like has selfies with bananas. Exactly. Sends the picture home to their kids. I just did something terrible. You I started putting on foundation without strobe cream. You've changed. I wow. just don't even know who you are anymore. Wow. Yeah, that's right. I think po various politicians have actually, like, you know, elbowed me to the floor yeah. to get to bananas. They're not here for you, sales. <laughs> now, do you remember the strobe cream instructions? Down the nose, apples of the cheeks. I remember it made no sense. On your moustache. <laughs> you coined that bit of advice. <laughs> on the tash. Oh, on the tash. Yeah, I, should be, I should be selling this stuff. Um, mm. Yeah, so we're about to head off to that. And, Why you know, are we actually putting on makeup? Because... Well, I don't know. I mean, really? You think we should just go au natural? Well, I'm quite natural. I'm putting on some lipstick. I'm not buggerising around with strobe, strobe cream. <laughs> Mind you, I don't look quite so haggard as you. <laughs> oh, I don't like you. You are in The great thing is that I am now in a position to rove around um, Lisa Hales's um, Hotel room. Hotel room. And I've, there's a lot of underwear on display. Let me just say. <laughs> let's, quite just, nice underwear. let's just keep that to ourselves. What happens well, in it, crummy it, hotel rooms has to stay in crummy hotel it's rooms. It's just an opening for um, my celebrity underwear story. Oh. I, I really only have one. Wow. Um, Hit me with it. And that is that when I lived in London, I went, I had to go and interview the Black Eyed Peas. Right. And I'm such an idiot that I didn't know who they were. And I rang up Jeremy and I said, um, is the. the, the the black-eyed Susan. I, get, well, I love the black-eyed Susan, so I would have had no yeah. problem there. Yeah. And he said, oh, "Peace." Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, yes, that's it." And he just went, "Oh God, you're an idiot." <laughs> and uh, it was one of those things where. So um, you went, Fergie, is it? You, nice you, to meet you. Well, I was. Um, they said that I was going to be interviewing Will. I. Am. Oh, right. I was struggling with that as well. <laughs> like the time that my mum bought my brother an In Excess album for his for Christmas, and she went into the record shop and asked for an. I don't know, it's like ink or something. <laughs> anyway, it was exactly like that. But I prepared all of these questions about, you know, um, uh, black politics and, like, all of this stuff. <laughs> I thought you were going to say and about then, actual black-eyed peas. No, 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 yeah, how to cook them, like, what's the idea of the period. God, I'm not much of an idiot. Well, I am, but anyway. And, they, and their, their promoter kept saying, like, pushing back the time for the interview, and this is in London, like, it got to 10pm, and he just kept saying, no, 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 they're not home from their whatever yet. Right. And then at, like, half past 10 or quarter to 11, they said, right, ready to go. And so I caught this cab round to this hotel mm. and was ushered into this hotel room that was kind of dark. Right. And I looked in and there was a bed with, like, a naked woman in it. I'm like, jeez, this is so rock and roll. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and then this person in the bed kind of, like, flowed out of bed and into a, um, a robe. And it was Fergie. 
And actually, I was interviewing Fergie, but nobody had told me. So I had all these <laughs> questions about, you know. How did you come up with the name, Will.i.m? I know. Every single, you know, oh. it was shocking. What was she and, doing in bed? Well, it was really late. She was tired. And she was being basically hauled out for one, or like, Will mm. I Am was supposed to be doing the interview, and then I don't know, mm. he was off, you know, being rock and roll somewhere. Right. And so they got Fergie to do it, and oh. she was incredibly nice and oh. charming. Oh. And given that I'd woken her up in the nude, she was unusually <laughs> understanding. But um, the whole Where did interview. Where the come into it? <laughs> well, right, stick around, because the whole interview, we're sitting on this sofa in her hotel room, and next to her on the sofa, I kid you not, it's this giant, transparent plastic bag full of G-strings. Wow. It was like the greatest collection of G-bangers I've ever seen <laughs> in my whole life, and I include my underpants this hotel drawer. Room. <laughs> this hotel room. <laughs> and the underpants drawers of all of my friends with whom I'm on that level of intimacy. More of them in my life. There wow. must have been 20 grams of them in that bag. <laughs> she must go through, like, a few of them on stage. In one show. I didn't ask. I was <laughs> unable to ask why she had so many. Wow. But it, they, were, they were clearly single use. I mean, you couldn't. That's like, look, I feel like compelled to speak to you like I'm your cadet journalism counsellor yeah. here to say, you need to ask about the undies. Well, it was just, look, it was late. I was confused. I had all these questions about, you know. It seemed a little personal. His contribution to the Clinton campaign or whatever it was. Like, I can't remember. Ooh. He was sort of politically active in some way. And so I wanted to, yeah. And not knowing the black-eyed peas, it wouldn't have been like you could well, instantly go, oh, well, I thought I was doing Neil Finn, but it's actually Tim Finn, so no biggie. Like, that's actually no. fairly significant. No. So. Yes. Mm. Anyway, look, it was Tricky. fine. She was a delight, so that's good. But, I mean, really, it was just triggered by my... I nearly had an embarrassing one the other day with wrong questions where I was doing a function at Glee Books with a guy called Garth Callender who wrote a book called After the Blast. He was a member of the Australian Army. He was one of the first, I think the first actually, Australian soldier injured in Iraq by an IED and he had some pretty bad injuries. Yeah. Anyway, he um, wrote a book about it, which I've, I've really supported because you don't often hear from mid-ranking yeah. soldiers and it was really great insight. It was well-written and stuff. Anyway, um, as I was preparing for that, I was also preparing for another thing that I'm doing, which is interviewing Stephen Schwartz, who was a legendary Broadway oh. musical producer. Oh, and I'm um, already in the fetal position and just... And frightened I, for what horrible <laughs> mix-up you've made. I've grabbed my notes as I've walked out the front door, and as I've got to the front gate, I've thought, I'd just better check they're the right ones. I had the musical theatre ones in my handbag. Thank God <laughs> I'd had a look, because could you imagine if I'd gone there? So, tell me about the writing of Godspell. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it all worked out okay, thank God. Looking right. good there. Thank you, love. I'm just putting on a little bit of blush over the top of my strobe cream. Um, now, what have you been... I think you're overdressed for Barnaby Joyce, just quietly. But... <laughs> I'm sure Barnaby about will think so. I'm sure Barnaby will appreciate my efforts. Um, all the <clears throat> staffers always want to have photos with me. Is that I'm right? like the equivalent of Kim Kardashian among staff at right. Parliament House. <laughs> Everyone wants a selfie of... with me. Have you noticed as well also these days, nobody wants a... Um, Nobody wants someone else to take a picture of you with them. Everyone wants to take just a selfie. Yeah, maybe it's kind of a, an increased degree of intimacy or something. I don't know. It's sort of... I've noticed it because sometimes I say to someone, oh, would you like Kevin me to Ryan. get... Maybe. For everything. I'm like, would you like, would you like me to get someone to take that? And they're like, no, 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 I just want to do it, want a selfie. So, go figure. Anyway. Right. Um, so, uh, hmm. do you know what? On the plane here, I've been reading... Uh, Richard Glover's book. 
I'm dying to read that. So he's our ABC colleague, and I don't mean to necessarily just sort of plug ABC colleagues' books, but it's funny when you've worked with someone and spent so many hours in a room with someone before, and, like, you know, I've gone Richard's show quite a bit, and um, he uh, is someone I feel I know reasonably well. Uh And I have heard him talk before about his family, and, like, he's got this sort of madcap family history. I knew that his mother like walked out on the family. Thanks for that. I, I, it's too late for that. For oh, me. It's okay. like the strobe cream thing. <laughs> I know I should use a lip liner because then uh, otherwise I'll get crazy old lady mouth but that's the way I'm heading. Anyway, Alright, I'll just use it. It's done. Yeah. Um, so, but this book is just absolutely extraordinary. Mm. So he has just had the most bizarre life and he starts by he, he opens the book by disclosing that his mother and his father never had sex. And he was like, he was conceived by IVF or artificial insemination because, not because they were infertile, but because his mother just couldn't stand his father and refused to have sex with him. So why did they want to have a child? Well, nothing in their lives together as a threesome ever answers that question because right. they just weren't very nice to him at all. And in fact, um, his mother scarpered with his English teacher <clears throat> very early on in the piece. Mm. It's just, it's, anyway, it's written though with this almost sort of like David Sedaris style humour. I mean, like right. if you've read Richard's books, you know he's a very funny writer. Uh. But this one is a particularly extraordinary piece of work. And he's so sort of, not just frank, but incredibly funny, like in a quite a sophisticated way about some really like quite dreadful things that have happened to him in the course of his life, which just makes me think, like, I look at that person that I see quite regularly, and I mean, if anything defines Glover, it's this sort of boundless boyish optimism and enthusiasm for everything. Like, I just think, how can you do that many hours of radio a day and still, and you know, and write a column and it's still always funny and he's always just doing extra stuff and I just think don't you ever run out of puff yeah for someone who clearly has had a really rough sort of first 20 years of their life he's a remarkably seems like a remarkably glass full personality yeah and he's always kind of like he writes a lot about his family and you know he's and his own family seems very functional and very loving it's not like he's like he's the sort of person that he's clearly taken what happened to him and thought, I'm not replicating that, and then has managed not to. Yeah, and he doesn't seem even, like, in the book, I mean, I'm only halfway through, but he sort of talks about meeting his wife and then having this sort of fleeting concern that he'd be this terrible parent because his own parents were so awful. Right. Um, And there's this kind of absolute, kind of reminded me of you, actually, not because you're an out-of-control drunk, but because (laughs) it involved damage to white carpet, which reminded me of our (laughs) Mad Men viewing episode. Yeah. But, like, he was talking about his mum and dad's house in Canberra that had this, like, shag pile carpet and was this sort of 1970s kind of, you know, pile. And um, then his mum, as I mentioned, ran away with um, Richard's English teacher and his dad just fell into this sort of alcoholic pit and periodically Richard would have to go around and kind of, you know, pick him up off this shagged pile carpet and he would have, like, hit his head and be bleeding everywhere. Mm. And, in fact, when he met his wife, um, he got this call, like, come round to your dad's house and he took his, you know, new age friend round and there's his dad, Starkers, in a puddle of blood oh. on this white shag pile carpet, oh. kind of, you know. He's like... This is my dad. Anyway, <laughs> I was thinking about this idea of um, tragedy plus time equals comedy when yeah. I was watching The Family Law, which is Benjamin oh, Law. Oh yeah, um, I've read the book um, and it's 
incredibly funny. Ben Law is a genius. He, he, is, yeah. oh, look, he is the funniest person and he's just a lovely human being as well. But um, the show is, like, it's definitely funny, but when you think about what it must have actually been like at the time living it, it would have been really, really sad. And so, you know, gay Asian boy growing up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland in the yeah. sort of... 80s and 90s, like it would have been really hard, but it's a, but it's a really funny show. It also had, and I'm just thinking of it because you and I are sort of standing over the top of an ironing board using it as a makeup yes. stand because yeah. um, it's the only location in the hotel room with a mirror. Um, there's this scene in it that, you know how sometimes there'll be an incidental bit of something in a um, TV show or a book, usually a TV show or a film, where it just instantly puts you into a certain moment. So there's this bit where Ben Law's mum is doing the ironing and she grabs the warty squirty bottle and just squirts it all over her face. And it's just, it's not part of the action, it's just yeah. an incidental bit of action. And I just went, oh my God, I haven't done that probably in 25 years, but I instantly felt like I was in the laundry in Queensland. Like it just completely took Isn't me into that funny? moment. Um, yeah, it was really, whoever's idea it was to have that little touch. The other touch I just love on that show is he has a talent agent, Ben, who's trying to help him get some roles and her name's Beryl Streep. <laughs> Everything is very Muriel's wedding. It's exactly as you'd expect, like that sort of, you know, small town talent, you know, the sort of the lesser. Like I always like to think of, you know, Black Caviar's brother, Barry, who's just a nag at school fairs, giving children rides and feeling really bitter about life and how things worked out for Black. Oh, Ben's no Barry. <laughs> now, um, shall we retire to the bed? Yeah. <laughs> I was. Now that we've done our makeup. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> That was an unusually swift beautification procedure, isn't it? It was. Hey, now, um, yes. I just noticed as we come to the bed... Yes, as we come to the bed... <laughs> that... Oh, Flora's fancy! <laughs> now, I wasn't sure whether oh, I should keep God, reading more. this, because I thought... Um, I was a bit worried that it's like telling someone in detail about your bad dreams. It's just really bad and boring and no one actually really cares and you sort of think it's interesting, but it's really not. But, but a lot of people have said to me, oh, my God, I just cacked myself at your stupid um, story. So I thought, oh, well. Do you think this is one of those Erica Betts moments <laughs> where you're like, know. my electorate office has been absolutely inundated <laughs> by calls of support for Tony Abbott and then... It could be. It's a great story where he said, like, I just want to say to those of you who are, who are proposing to leave the Liberal Party, don't be hasty. And then the, uh, and then the kind of party director in Tasmania is like, oh, yeah, no, we had a couple quit, but, like, heaps, heaps more joined. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that was really funny. Look, it could be a little bit like that. dated by messages of support that all politicians have that when they've, like, screwed up really badly. Like, I've been so heartened by just, you know just absolutely swamped with messages of support and then you realise it's like four people and their mum. If we ever write a sitcom, we could have like, you know, you could do an edit between, I've been inundated with messages of support and you could have them walking down the street with some bogan yelling out the window. Oh, you bloody loser! So I'm accurately, I think, surmising that some drunk has leaned out of a taxi window and yelled, Florence Fancy! In fact, it's Wendy Bevan's fault because she tweeted, um, you know, recently, you know, oh, Laura, what a life. <laughs> Have you counted that in your count? <laughs> Sorry, I've got to stop You told me about that today. Um, no, but look, I wouldn't mind, actually, if you are a listener, regular listener, let me know if you do want to hear more of Flora's Fancies. There's only another... <laughs> There's just 
so much. And it's, also, about, it's about 20 pages altogether, and we're up to page five. It's all really roundy, roundy girl. I know, but then you notice... Did you ever, did you ever do the eye, like the dots as circles? Oh, of course. Of course I went through that phase. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so previously on Flora's Fancy, Flora is an orphaned child who... Um, whose mother would died in childbirth, whose father subsequently committed suicide. Yes. She's been taken in by her cruel he aunt. Um, who blames Flora for the death of her baby sister. <laughs> That's right. And who subsequently gassed the only one of her children that Flora liked, correct? <laughs> oh, no, it, wasn't, it was like he died of pleurisy <laughs> or lupus no. or something. Persis, I believe you're referring to. <laughs> died of pneumonia. <laughs> died of pneumonia. And so now Persis, uh, we have left Flora and she is now alone with nobody, and Megan is the meanest of the cousins. <clears throat> After Persis's death, Flora became very reclusive. She didn't even try to be friendly with Aunt Muriel and her cousins. Aunt Muriel's two butlers, Harrison and Reginald. So Harrison and Reginald, Reginald yes. were nice to Flora, but, well, they weren't any fun, and Flora couldn't really feel comfortable with them. Christina, to clarify, is that well actually in text? Um, it's, yeah, but well, yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Christina, the maid, was fun, and Flora liked her, but she couldn't adore her the way she did purses. Aunt Muriel's house on 13 Black Street <laughs> suddenly lived up to its name. A blacker, more dismal house couldn't be imagined, especially during the cold English winter. <laughs> Keep in mind, this is written in Queensland. <laughs> Oh, God. I should have saved my makeup for after this because now yeah, I'm going to destroy it. I know. No light ever entered the house, it seemed to Flora. The house, named Walter Manor, was extremely big and foreboding. Its windows were eyes and the door was an ugly mouth. All in all, the house was like a great monster ready to eat you after your first step across the threshold. It's getting a little steep. <laughs> Megan said the house was elegant, but Flora knew it was just an evil dwelling full of evil people. Once, Flora said to Christina, when I grow up, I mean to have a lovely little house with a light in every window and flowers growing in abundance. And Christina replied, it's written exactly like this. <laughs> Do you know what I really like about you? Is that you're... <laughs> Your derision at this point and enjoyment is 100% sincere, even though this is you you're laughing at. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you can't laugh at your 13-year-old self, who can you laugh at? <clears throat> and Christina replied, <laughs> I've got tears, like, fully running down my face. I, I, you have too many of <laughs> Oh, my God, really? It's with the accent. <laughs> no. So you've now lapsed into Thomas Hardy, just for a couple of paragraphs. Just for a couple of paragraphs. Ah, uh, ye have too many of these fancies and how ye life's about how ye life's going to turn out. <laughs> but, Christina, life's meant to be fancied about, as you put it. Dreams are the essence of life, after all. Aye, <laughs> <I>, little one. <laughs> Christina is being performed by Hagrid for this performance. <laughs> But you, but you live in a world of fancy. It's not good for a little girl, said Christina. Flora just sighed and began daydreaming again. That's how Flora was, distinctly creative with a flowing imagination. Now, wait for this. With flaming red hair <laughs> and a Highland dance outfit. Get this. Every now and then, Flora would get an urge to write a story. Not a short story, but a great novel. Yes. After a while, Flora would lose the urge and her stories would remain incomplete. Remind you of anybody? 
Once Christina found a stream of floors. Oh, sorry, everyone. Once Christina found a stream of floors, and although it was so, certainly no masterpiece, here and there were touches of genius. Ah. Christina realised that Flora had talent and that she would accomplish great success because of it one day. How true Christina's predictions were. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to leave it there. <laughs> because this is a um, because this is an uh, auditory format, <laughs> I will have to now inform anyone listening that sales now looks like a melted ice cream. <laughs> That strong cream's not helping you now, doll. Back to the mirror. Yeah. Oh my, I, I also have wet. We're both better at Oh, that's not good. Oh, oh dear. Good. I look like I've been. Oh, that's it. Just the ABC's not that my mother died or something. Oh. <laughs> that's right. Sorry, Catalyst, it's all over. I don't know. Do you think Mitch Blythe's going to cough up when I show up looking like this? Dearie me, I don't know if I've got any tissues. I think I'm going to have to get toilet paper. Can you just come with me to the toilet? Toilet paper is not the only thing that there is. Do you know what I think we need to do when we get to the end? Sorry for the audio of the toilet paper being ripped off. No. When we get to the end of Flora's Fancies, did I actually record when we started this? Yes. I think we need to... Each just get have to do a competition that's a one-page synopsis of the end of Flora's Fancies oh, in the that style of awesome. Flora's Fancies. It's yeah. never going to end, is it? I mean, it's... <laughs> no, I just think... And I the competition how, is... You know, you're using um, Clark's shiny one-ply <laughs> on your delicate under-eye area. I'm pretty sure that those strobe cream people you're not meant would to do that. I think they probably would. Um, and the competition is you have to make it... The bleakest, yeah. like it's got to remain in yeah. the, you know. Not a stick can be left standing of that woman's life. Although I guess she's got to, like, because we've sort of set up that she is going to accomplish great things, but I guess the yeah, blackness is going to have to be the revenge. Oh, yeah, okay. By, wombat or something. by one of those butlers. Yeah, I Because now that they're in the narrative, what, yeah. what narrative purpose are those people fulfilling? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you have that all mapped up. Now, I'm um, sorry, you had all of our notes on your... Um, <laughs> yeah, they've gone the clean bed. out of my head. What have I been... To... Oh, look, I continue to kind of pick up the rubble after completing um, Making a Murderer. Um, oh, you yeah, finished Making a Murderer? I have. Oh, okay. Because um, I, I refused to read anything about the case... Um, while I was watching it, um, because I had the sense that it might shatter my enjoyment of it, and I couldn't. Right. Like I'd never heard of that case, so right. um, I uh, wasn't, you know, unduly intruded upon by reality. Um, and actually, quite recently, um, your friend um, uh, Alec Baldwin oh, yeah. has put up on his um, "Here's the Thing" podcast an interview with the two women who made oh, yeah. Make the Murder, which oh, is yeah, really okay. worth listening to. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Partly because I just. They had, they had the most interesting reason for starting this um, this you know ten year documentary, which is overwhelming on a lot of fronts, but mainly because of its um, absolute completeness and well the amount of material that they've gone through. Obviously, that some right. are arguing that it's not complete, um, which is not, so that's contentious. But anyway, so these these two women who are like partners um, were at film school in New York. Right. And they read about this case of, you know, Stephen Avery right. um, who had been convicted for a sexual assault and then um, 
served 18 years in prison and then was exonerated on DNA evidence right. um, and then was charged with a murder a year or two after his release. Um, they read about it in the New York Times and they just thought, oh, why don't we just go down there and see if it's worth making a, you know, a doco about. Mm. And so they went down there and like sat in on the trial and then got to know the defence and all sorts. And they ended up being there for years and years. Wow. They lived there for two years. And what they said was, we didn't have any money. We wanted to make a film. Right. We were film students. But we had a lot of time. Like, time was the only resource that we had. And but actually, how did they fund it? Sorry, that was just... <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was the makeup one. Rise around us. <laughs> yeah. That was a really moving thing that I was saying before you, yeah. No, so, um, yeah. So, um, and that, it struck me that that's what is really so rich about that show, is that the amount of time is really evident. Like, there's no, they don't, they don't use any of the kind of things that you sometimes use to cut corners when you're making a film or a documentary, for instance, there's no narrator. Like, so... Right they get from A to B in the same way that, like, Australian Story does, which is also a kind of, you know, hard show to make because mm. you don't have narrators. They ask, they ask the interviewees to kind of, like, tell the story or they show um, news snippets or documents or, as, as is the case with Making a Murderer, they um, use um, audio of phone calls, you know, with the prisoner and stuff like that. It's kind of amazing. Anyway, it made me think about, you know, the resources that went into that film were kind mm. of primarily that they had a lot of time but not much money. So they lived in Wisconsin right. and kind of moved into this community as a pair of, you know, lesbian film students from New York and does, eventually kind of... Does it look um, cheap, like, for that reason? Like, is the look of it... No, um, no, it doesn't. But it has that... I wouldn't describe it as expensive necessarily. Like, there's not a lot of whiz-bangy kind of stuff in it, but it's, 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 it's been made with care. Like, so... Right. It's incredibly elegant in the way the story shifts along, borne along by these sort of interviews, historical fragments, kind of crazy grainy video from police interviews. Right. And, and that's what's elegant about it. It's like one of those mosaics that you see where someone's, like, ripped up a thousand cigarette pa packets and then you stand back and suddenly it's Marilyn Monroe. Like, it's that right. sort of thing. Oh, yeah, right. Um, but there was a piece that um, actually um, uh, Marianne Leach from... Um, uh, foreign correspondent sent me because we were talking about um, uh, making a murderer, and she sent me a link to this like really interesting article that's on um, uh, Slate.com, which is an interview with the guy. Uh, his name's Errol Morris. He made the Thin Blue Line. Mm -hmm. Did you ever see that movie no, in the eighties? No, it's it, it's kind of I guess like it's really old now, but it was quite revolutionary at the time because I think it, it was you know one of the first of these sorts of true crime documentary kind of examination of a, you know, a, you know, a convicted person. To, mm -hmm. Anyway, in this case, it was a guy, um, this vagrant who'd been spending the day with this teenager, uh, his name, um, the, the vagrant's name, oh, I can't remember, but he, um, he was in a car with this teenager, they were pulled over by a cop, mm. and the cop was shot dead. Right. And the vagrant guy was convicted and right. was in prison and was like, basically days away from being executed when this film came out and, you know, this filmmaker, Errol Morris, had devoted this enormous amount of time to um, investigating and he'd, he'd interviewed the kid in the car who, uh, who was driving the car who turned out to actually have Beamish. done the murder. Right. Yeah. But um, he was talking about the difference between making a film like that 
in uh, when he made it and what's happening today with this kind of incredible um, popularity of shows oh, yeah, like right. Serial or like right. Making a Murderer. And he said, like, the difference is the internet. Mm. You've got this amazing word of mouth mm. like because there's that whole industry now isn't there where people go on those reddit pages and oh yeah amazing and start their own investigation yeah or somebody you know materializes that oh i actually knew like do you know what i'd love to follow up you know that um love plus radio podcast that you brought up last year about oh, yeah. the woman spying on the neighbors yeah, yeah. i'm wondering now if someone who knows the couple. I know. I've been waiting for that to happen. Yeah, too. I want to know. Did Surely somebody, must someone must have heard it who yeah. says, I think I know who that couple is. They're my friends, Mary and Peter or whatever. Yeah. So I would love to know what actually happened with that. But it's, it's funny too, isn't it, that immersion style of, um, it's journalism really, where, like I was thinking about... Um, John Berent, who wrote Midnight in the Garden of Good and yeah, Evil, it's one of yeah. my favourite non-fiction books, where he went and lived in Savannah for six years to sort of wait out the trial that was going on. Of I think the guy's name was Jim Williams, who was yep. accused of this murder. Um, and the, the thing that becomes tricky then at the other end of it, I think like any piece of journalism, but particularly when you've basically lived in the community for a long period of time, yeah. is what is going to be the, be the reaction of these people right, to what you produce. It's that kind of balance, isn't it, of, of immersion and distance. Yeah. And Savannah was um, profoundly affected by John Barron's book because yeah. it was on the New York Times bestseller yeah. list for years yeah. and a whole industry in Savannah sprung up around it and the people that were in it became celebrities and so it had a big impact on Savannah and Savannah initially was very upset about I did a radio documentary about it went down there and did a whole documentary about it when I lived in the US and they were initially very upset but then they embraced it because they figured well it's pouring a lot of money into the local economy it's it's what you do when you take a story and you portray it you know and it's Mm. their story Mm. and you it's in your hands and particularly when it's a work of art yeah that gets really interesting I remember reading an interview with Truman Capote who was saying because he went you know and lived in like, mm. Kansas, yeah. and you know he was this like incredibly fey kind of mm. character, and he's moved to kind of regional Kansas, yeah, and cold blood, yeah, and they just didn't know what to make him of him at all. But I'm interested in that, like, who owns the story thing. Like one of the um, in this Slate piece where they talked to um, Errol, Errol Morris, he tells this incredibly. I won't recount it now, but it's really worth a look. It's an incredibly hair raising account of his attempt to find this teenage boy who'd been in the car and it turns out that he'd been in prison and whatever and he eventually finds him and his tale of getting the final frames of the film in an interview with this guy was quite extraordinary but Mm. the guy that he got out of prison like that the film effectively saved from death row um later sued him for like the vagrant guy um sued him for kind of um Taking his life story or misusing yeah, his right. life story, which yeah. is quite—I I don't know what happened there, and I don't, you know, the the article doesn't go into full detail, but it makes me want to read more about how that worked, and mm. you know, you'd think that that guy would be sort of supremely grateful, but also he was yeah. sort of—he felt transgressed upon in some way as well. Well, I guess it's that thing where you. We all have a certain view of ourselves. Like, clearly, when I was writing Flora's Fancy, I thought I was a literary genius. And you weren't and, entirely <laughs> wrong, love. <laughs> 
but you so how... brought a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. <laughs> how we perceive ourselves and how yeah. others perceive us is a different thing. So when you know someone comes in to write about you, like that's why I think I think we've said this in the podcast before. It would be very very terrifying to have a profile written of you by sure. a very very fine writer because that would be the actual truth of what you're like, and it might not be what you think you're like. Um, and also, I wonder, like, say Stephen Avery. I mean, making of a murderer has become very, very successful. So for his family, they would be thinking, well, who's made the money off that? Someone's making money from that, and it's probably not them. I don't imagine they were paid for their participation, but I don't know, maybe they did do a deal that they've got a cut of it. But it's an interesting thing in journalism too where you interview someone, you spend a lot of time with them, you're the one who's putting in the work, writing the book and got the skill to actually tell the story, yet they feel that it's their story. It's hard to, you can't kind of, you can't... um, retain a trademark or kind of copyright in your own life story, really. I mean, Mm. people make efforts to kind of codify this, too, and I'm reminded of um, the um, uh, Fatal Vision, which is the book, I think we've talked about it before, that Joe McGuinness wrote about um, the convicted murderer, Jeffrey MacDonald. And MacDonald, who was already a sort of superstar by the time, like he was a really, like he was a Mm. celebrity defendant, um, he was um, actually, like, scouting around for someone to write an account of his trial, so confident that he was that he'd be um, acquitted. And he got McGuinness to sign a contract, you know, they were going to share in the profits from the book, right? Oh, right. And so the deal was that McDonald would give McGuinness access, intimate access to him and his defence team and whatever. And they became really good friends, and there's all this correspondence to demonstrate that. And then the awkward thing that happened was that over the course of the trial... McGuinness became convinced that McDonald was guilty mm. and um, and then wrote the book that way but didn't tell McDonald that he was right. planning that that was going to be his conclusion. And seriously, like the way that McDonald found out, you know, in prison that this was what the book was about was that he saw it on television or something, like, mm. you know, that, that this guy who thought he was his friend had kind of turned on him. Mm. And he sued McGuinness right. um, because he said it was a breach of contract. It probably, who won that case? Well, it was settled by the publisher. So, right. so the publisher just kind of paid up, right. which I think McGuinness was then very upset about. But, of course, that, that then became, as God, I'm sure we've discussed before, became the premise of Janet Malcolm's book, The mm. Journalist and the Murderer, yeah. which has a lot of really harsh things to say yeah. about the relationships between writers and their subjects, yeah. and journalists in particular, because she says at the heart of every journalistic interaction is a sort of a, a bait and switch. You're you know, a confidence you, trickster. You pretend to be their friend so that you can then, you mm. know, kind of mine them for information which you then use mm. in your own work of art. Or even if you don't pretend to be their friend, like even if you're just pleasant and polite and you're interested, yeah. people would mistake that for you being their friend. And so, yeah, course, because yeah. you listen, you've probably listened more than anyone else in their life to every little thing that they want to say about it, and you've got endless yeah. amounts of fascination in it and then you turn around and you bring then a sort of different eye to it maybe yeah. then what they, they're expecting of course it to be 100% sympathetic but you know it's not always so it's a different oh, it's a massive balancing act too because mm. then you also have the reader who's reading it and going well look why aren't you you know being harder on this person or whatever or you is... have ones where you might you think that the person you know that actually it's they're flawed or whatever, but you quite like them. And so you don't really want to write what you think is the truth of the matter. Like, so there's lots of different, there's so much, because it's not just, you're not a robot, like you're a human being, you know, brought into the situation. So yeah, it's a very messy sort of thing. Hey, um, 
We're out of time because we have to oh, go down and get on the bus. Too. You just gabbled on about yourself. The whole I know. Time, and now we're Sorry, out of time. Love, Is I there know. anything? Oh, leave, go to iTunes and leave a review. Huh? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> well done, huh? love. www.chat10looks3.com. Um, um, and oh, look, we'll be back soon, I'd say. Back oh, soon. You never know. We're off like the years. Sometime, along. sometime within the next 12 months, I'm sure. We'll... You look beautiful, by the way. I've never <laughs> seen you look quite so beautiful. That's it's creepy now that you're saying very that. Dewy. It's creepy now that you're saying that, like, we're on the bed together. I know, it's true. It's creepy. There's underpants everywhere. Everyone, I'm just getting out of here, okay? See ya. Bye. <laughs>